Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Chronicles of Nannia, a nanny resource podcast made for nannies by me, a nanny. I'm your host, Martha Reddick, and this week we are going to be talking about language in kids' movies and uh, everything that, that goes along with that. And to do that, I have brought on Jennifer Bloomquist. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Martha. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, when I got an email about this uh, from your team, I it really intrigued me, and so I, I'm glad that you're willing to sit down and, and talk with us. Absolutely. But before we kind of get into the interview part, let's hear a little bit about your background. Okay. Um, so I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and um, then... From there, went to college at Clarion University, which is in Western Pennsylvania, and I got my bachelor's degree in English literature. Um, and while I was working on that degree, um, the requirements in the state of Pennsylvania for some of the um, English degrees is that you have to take linguistics courses. And I had never taken a linguistics course, hadn't even really heard about linguistics um, until then. And um, the class, the two classes that I took were taught by um, a guy named Herb Luthen, whose, um, whose area of specialty originally was on the sound system of Valley Girl English. Oh. And yeah, I know. And so this just opened up a whole new world for me. Because um, I'm one of those people who is always very interested in the way that people talk. Um, one of the things that you first notice about somebody new is first if they look like you, but then if they sound like you or they sound different from you. Um, and so I've always been really, really interested in American dialects. So, um, so when I graduated from Clarion, I realized I had this, you know, start on a path towards linguistics. So I went to graduate school at the University of Buffalo, where I got my master's degree and my PhD in linguistics. Um, and the work that I did there um, for my master's degree, I did 
um, research on what we mean when we talk about lying, cheating, and stealing, and how we sort of categorize different dishonest behaviors. Um, and then my dissertation was on um, the ways in which children develop new naming strategies for um, things they've never seen before. And I looked at um, I looked to see if there were socioeconomic status differences in um, the development of language behavior um, in naming, and also looked at racial differences. Um, and so that's the kind so of work cool. that I was. Yeah, it, it really was, and it's it's not the topic for this interview, right. but um, but one of the things that I found, which which I thought was really fascinating, was that there are clear class link differences in the development of certain linguistic structures, and basically that middle class kids are socialized differently. Um, when it comes to um, certain language behaviors. And those language behaviors are what is most rewarded in schools. Mm -hmm. So my research pointed to the fact that we're not talking about any cognitive differences, but what we are talking about is um, class-linked differences that, that already advantage middle-class kids before they start school. Right. So, yeah, so the hope for that research was really to help um, to help a lot of different um, programs like Head Start to think about ways in which they could um, use some techniques to get children who come from lower um, resource families ready for school in different ways. Um, so then I left, <laughs> I left uh, graduate school and started teaching here at Gettysburg College. And that, I started here 17 years ago. Um, and my home department is um, Africana Studies. Um, and the work that I have been doing here um, is much more in alignment with um, American dialectology. Uh, I did a big project that was funded by the National Science Foundation here to look at what African-American English speakers are doing in this area of Pennsylvania. And then my most recent project, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is looking at the ways in which ethnicity is created just through the voicing in children's animated films. Um, that's a project that I've been at work on for the past couple of years for Oxford University, um, and the book should hopefully come out um, later on this year. Great. Do, uh, do you know, or can you tell us what that book is called? It's called From Dumbo to Donkey, Linguistic Menstruacy in Children's Animated Films. Wonderful, because I this as you've been talking, I I want to interview you a bunch. This sounds <laughs> very very interesting and and useful uh, for for nannies and caregivers and educators. I I think that all of this is is really interesting. I know that I um, really admire and have have tried to talk with my older kids um, about code switching and, mm -hmm. and what that looks like and um, where they see it and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, there's so, there's so much to language and how we communicate with each other. And so this mm -hmm. is all very, very interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit more deeply about your study and, and what you learned from it and we can learn from it. Okay. Um, so I'll start off with what inspired it. Um, so I never thought that I was going to write a book. In my field, we write a lot of articles, and that was just fine with me. Um, but then uh, I have two sons, and when they were little, um, 
we went and saw all kinds of animated films. I am a huge fan of animated films. I always went when I was a kid. And so when I had them, we started to go. And I took them to see the film Happy Feet. And, um, and so there was a lot of, I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of hype around Happy Feet, mostly for its um, sort of environmental political message. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I think that Happy Feet as a film really aimed to teach some really important um, lessons about individuality and then also about being good stewards of the environment um, and all that. So I was excited to take my kids. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things about Happy Feet is it's about penguins. If for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's about penguins <laughs> in Antarctica. And so visually, um, there isn't a lot of variation, right? Because penguins are black and white and they're in a snowy background. So right. I think that the filmmakers tried very, very hard to identify different penguin characters through the voicing in ways that we don't see in some of the other films. Um, and it was it was fine until there's a part of the film where there's a penguin named Lovelace who is sort of this mystical guru penguin and all the other penguins have to go to visit him on this mountaintop and give them, give him um, sort of this honorary of a stone and get to ask a question. So he's sort of this wise man. And the issue I had with the film was that the mystical guru penguin Lovelace um, is voiced by Robin Williams. That's right. And yeah. yeah, and the voice is really, um, it's Robin Williams doing like an African-American English voice. And it actually struck me very much sounding like Barry White. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is actually linguistic blackface where you have a white actor putting on a fake black voice to sort of carve out this race or ethnicity for a character. And it, as an African-American mother myself, I was a little bit struck by this because I thought, in this day and age, why are we still doing this? Barry White was still alive at the time. They could have gotten him to do it. And I'm not sure... I mean, I, I think Robin Williams is just very gifted in many ways, but I, I wasn't convinced that, that that that's the way they needed to go with right. that character. And there were a whole bunch of things wrapped up in that character. So it has this very white voice. Um, Robin Williams sort of uses the cadences of black preaching style. Um, Lovelace is a wise man, but he's being choked by a soda, a soda ring um, kind of thing. And so... All of this created this very um, narrowly defined and stereotypical way of understanding a particular kind of blackness. And so when I left that film, I thought to myself, you know what, I need to look more clearly at what is going on with the voicing of these black intended characters in, in animated film. Um, and so I started the project with a historical um, look and I started with the first um, feature-length animated film that had a black intended character and that was 1941 that was Dumbo mm-hmm. um, and so of course we know and you know, what 40 years on six oh sorry 60 years on um, <laughs> we know that, that there, a lot has been said about the crows in Dumbo that they um, are some of the most racist characters in children's animated film and so I started there and I, I looked at every single feature-length 
children's animated films. So I looked at films that were rated either G or PG, mm-hmm. um, ones that are intended for child audiences from 1941 to 2015, I think is when I stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just did linguistic analysis of all of the black intended characters that had um, significant speaking parts. Um, and the reason I stopped in 2015 is because right around the early 2000s is when um, animated film just explodes. And when I was growing up, there'd be like one or two animated films a year. But now there are upwards of, you know, 10, 12 a year. And it it just got to be, (laughs) it just got to be too much, this market saturation of, um, of the animated film industry. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, I, I looked at all the language. I looked at what was going on historically at the time. So to return to Dumbo, we're talking about 1941. This is during Jim Crow segregation. The Crows themselves, the lead Crow, his name is Jim Crow. Wow. And one of my arguments is that when we look at these black intended characters, when we look at the language that's being used and sort of um, the topics available to them um, and the roles available to them, we really need to consider that um, that these characters are reflected in the socio-political environment in which they're created. Um, and so we would expect some differences from 1941 when race relations were very, very different than 2015. But one of the things that I think was rather disappointing about the data is that um, even though live action film has moved beyond this and race relations are very different in 2015 than they are in 1941. We still see some of these ossified character roles um, where black characters are not represented um, at the same rates that white characters are. And we are still seeing some very narrowly defined ways of understanding um, blackness in these films. And I only looked at African-American English because that's the work that I do. Um, there's some other very good work on um, what we would call, you know, what we'd say are non-English or foreign accents. Um, for example, like British English or French accented, um, Spanish accented language. that uh, I was just looking at these these black characters or ones that were black intended because it still is the case that we're still having um, white actors who are voicing what are supposed to be these black roles. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the original Lion King comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, of, yeah. Uh, who was it? JTT? Jonathan Taylor Swift? Or no? Yeah. Yeah. Is that his name? Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Is da- his name. Yep. Yeah. Not Swift. <laughs> I yeah. just married him off to Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that does come to mind. Um, a quick sidebar just of my own curiosity. Did you have mm-hmm. to do the emoji movie? No. Okay. <laughs> no. I didn't. I heard it was awful. Yeah. Even my kids, my older kids that I nanny were like, we went and saw it and I wish I hadn't. I'll never yeah. get that two hours back. <laughs> yeah. I heard it was awful. And and I have to tell you, Martha, I yeah, I I also reached saturation point because some of these, you know, a lot of these films I watched as a kid, but rewatched for this book. Um, right. And I just like, I just feel like, and I'm, I'm a little concerned about what's going on with animated film now because it's become so lucrative that, um, that, that there are just a lot of bad 
children's animated films that are being made because they're they're big money makers. They're getting a huge market share now. Yeah, and I I think it's really crucial to um, because we we kind of have this idea of if it's rated G or PG that um, it's appropriate and Mm -hmm. fine for children to watch. And um, Mm -hmm. the, the danger in that is of course that the messaging uh, in a G movie can, can be really uh, dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I do think I absolutely do think that parents should have their kids, you know, watch these animated films. I think that there are some really good things that they teach. Um, and I, you know, I, one of the things that I sort of struggle with in the book is, is by and large, there are, there's a lot of good in animated films and they are beneficial to children. But my argument is that parents shouldn't be wholly uncritical. Um, and just because it's animated film, it's, it's no accident, right, that some of these things are embedded in there. It's corporate cultural hegemony that is at work. And there's a reason for it. Right. Um, and and, and I, I think as a linguist, what's really so fascinating is we have so many of these animated films now that don't actually feature people. They're not physically representing race on screen. They're having, you know, there's donkeys, there's dragons, there's, you know, skunks and zebras. And so the filmmakers rely very, very heavily on um, these identifiably black voices. Um, and more and more since, since Jungle Book in 1967, that's when um, filmmakers, animated filmmakers, realize the um, potential for voices that are easily recognizable in terms of um, regular actors. And so from 1967 on, there's been a growing trend to hire really recognizable voices like someone like Eddie Murphy or Chris Rock or Wanda Sykes. Mm-hmm. And the issue that happens is that all of the black voices that are hired um, for these roles, those are all comedians. We okay. rarely see um, black actors who aren't comedians be asked to do animated animated film voices, but we see plenty of white actors who aren't comedians um, voicing animated characters. Um, and so that speaks to what kind of roles are available for blacks. Um, and I, I gave a talk at Bucknell University years ago, and one of the students there said, well, what about James Earl Jones in The Lion King? Um, they said, you know, he's black and, and he's Mufasa. He's, he's the, the king of, of the tribe, I mean, of the pride. And um, I said, well, think about the way Mufasa sounds. James Earl Jones was actually selected because he sounded um, majestic. He was not selected for that role because he sounded stereotypically or um, African-American or black, right? And so he is intended to not sound like other black characters in that film. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so there's this super heavy, heavy reliance on voicing to carve out these racial niches for these characters. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Did you find, um, I mean, we've been talking about The Lion King, so that mm-hmm. comes to mind of this idea, you know, they did it years ago, and then now they're redoing it, and they're calling it live action, but mm-hmm. it's just heavily better, CGI. Yeah, yeah better looking <laughs> animation. Um, yeah. Have you, have you found, um, 
as time passed, a, a difference um, as, as we've gone along? Has it, has it gotten, quote unquote, better? Has it gotten better in some ways and worse in others? Or um, Well, so I would say certainly some of it is better. Um, so if you go back to 41 with Dumbo and the Crows or even um, in 1967, which was um, Jungle Book, right? Um, I think we have moved away from some of those really damaging uh, depictions of these black intended characters, but we have settled in to the idea that black characters are funny. Um, if they're black and male, you see more um, violence in their dialogue. Um, these characters often are unsophisticated, um, where they are they are um, ones that are highly emotional. They're ones that are um, superstitious. Um, across the board, and we're seeing this, you know, up until 2015, 2016, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that some films have done better than others is providing more than one black voice in the film. So if you think about something like Mulan, you have Eddie Murphy. Right. And Eddie Murphy does this, I mean, you know, he's also, he also voices um, Donkey in Shrek. And, and so this in some ways is a, a really lucrative job for Eddie Murphy. Um, but then, and so in those films, it's he's the single black comedic voice. Um, and that's the way Madagascar started out. Um, but the one of the, I think it was the third Madagascar, um, you have a variety of black actors some of whom aren't comedians who are voicing um, different characters. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we are seeing more of that, um, which I like. Um, and I think that's, that should be the aim, right? That there should be a range of black voices the way that there's a range of white voices. And we should be able to tap um, actors who aren't comedians who can provide the voicing for these and sort of expand these roles. Um, yeah. So. So I think I think in some ways, yes, um, we are making progress. I don't think that we're making the kind of progress. So parallel to the work that I do is the work that some really tremendous feminist scholars have been doing all along um, with um, sort of what goes on with Disney princesses. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have done far better um, in female roles in animated films than we have with um, these black intended roles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm even, I'm thinking, you know, about some of the more quote unquote diverse movies uh, mm -hmm. like Coco and uh, Moana, and those mm -hmm. are not black intended characters, obviously, mm -hmm. but telling those stories of other cultures, I think, um, is important. And and I know that like The Princess and the Frog, um, <laughs> focused on on uh black intended characters uh but also a very specific you know louisiana cajun yeah um, yeah and and i and i think that disney tried yeah. with um with the princess and the frog but i think did not i think that there were a number of missed opportunities in yeah. that film um I came away feeling similarly 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of critics have pointed out, right? You have you have the first black princess and she spends something like what 65-70% of her time on screen as a frog. Right. And and um Anikanoni Rose is the the actor who voices um Tiana in that movie and she I think to a lot of audiences sounds, you know, maybe southern but not always sounding black in ways that are easily identifiable. And so I think it's so easy to forget that we're talking about, um, you know, Disney's first black princess for the vast majority of that movie. Right. Yeah. Because it is the majority that she spends as a frog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as caregivers, you know, we're always looking for, for ways to, um, talk to our kids and and things about bigger subjects because that is something that nannies get to do that um the teachers and and others that have fuller plates might not mm -hmm. we have the time to really get into deep conversations mm -hmm. um so what uh pointers or or things like that do you have uh for parents or nannies who who want to have a conversation about animated films and and this topic with their kids um well i think i i think that nannies and parents should definitely have conversations with their kids about race um i teach I mean, so I, I teach at the college level, and so the students I see come in at, you know, 18 years old, and a lot of them have been raised in a way that um, they're ashamed to talk about race, and I think that's a huge mistake, because I mm -hmm. think that we have a lot of parents and caregivers who are afraid to engage children in conversations about race because they feel that discussing race is a negative thing, um, and then that sort of lets children think that races, racial differences are negative. And that shouldn't be the case. I think that racial differences should be acknowledged, um, not, not saying that there are racial deficits, but I think that it's important for children to understand that there are racial and cultural differences, and they're great. Um, you know, not elevating or, or, you know, dismissing one or the other or any of them, um, and I think that the more children are comfortable with talking about difference, the better off they are and the better they are prepared to have these really um, sort of in-depth conversations about what it means to recognize racial difference. So I, I think that that's really important. And I think some of these films certainly do provide useful entry into those conversations. Um, because of the work that I've done with sort of focus groups with children, we know that children attend to racial differences, gender differences early, early on. Um, they are not oblivious to these kinds of things. Um, but they're also not usually the ones who are passing judgment. Um, they are, <laughs> these films, in some ways, I think they're dangerous because they do indoctrinate these racial ideologies that um, that parents and nannies have an opportunity to check. So um, when I was doing these um, sort of film watching uh, studies with kids here, asking, you know, we would watch the film and I would ask them questions, you know, who do you think is the funny one and um, who sounds most like, you know, people in your family or those kinds of things. And so to get children to think about 
why certain characters sound funny, if they would be funny if they had different voices, um, if they think those characters are smart, if they think those characters are honest, and then to sort of suss out what that is, you know, what, what those perceptions are coming from. And to talk about, you know, you can talk about the actions of those characters in the films. Because um, one of the things also that seems to happen often with these Black intended characters, they are quite frequently used as the vehicle in the film to sort of teach some kind of moral lessons, right? So if we think about um, Mushu and Mulan, here we have the character who is most flawed and has the biggest lessons to learn, um, but also is the favorite character. Mm -hmm. And so using that character sort of as a way to um, understand different kind of character traits I think is useful. But I think it's also really, really important for parents and caregivers and nannies to talk about the fact that these are just, you know, this is just one character. And you can't then take Mushu and assume that all, you know, all black people, all black men um, are going to behave in this way. Um, I think it's important for um, children who aren't black. And I think it's important for children who are black, because what we're seeing is black children see themselves reflected in these characters and then think that there is a particular way that they need to act to be sort of performing this acceptable blackness. Um, and I think that what caregivers should do is make sure that children are provided with a, a, lots of opportunities to see different kinds of um, racial dynamics in these, in these films. Um, and I think that there are a lot of really good cartoons on TV that do this better than films do, to be honest with you. Yeah. I I would I would agree with that, um, and and yeah I I I think that's so important um, to have those conversations. A, a couple weeks back, we uh, had an episode about how to talk to kids about race. So, <laughs> if um, with Dr. Camp. So if you are listening and you missed that episode and you're like, that sounds really intimidating, um, I encourage you to go listen to that episode because it's a good foundation for this episode, which is kind of a more um, deep dive on a particular part of that conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and so do you have, have you found any films that, um, that are teaching <laughs> <laughs> better lessons, more more uh, diversity in the black intended characters and their voices and and uh, types of of characters, archetypes that they're presenting as. I you know I I think that I I don't think that I've seen it in film to be mm -hmm. honest with you, and I wonder if it's because films are higher stakes um, right. that they they there's much more that has to be done within that two hour time frame in a film. Um, other critics have pointed out, um, there's a, a linguist by the name of Rosina Lippy Green, who, you know, started doing this work years ago, and she's really, really good. Um, and she points out that films have to sort of create these character snapshots so quickly, because there's just two hours. Um, and so I think that it's, I think some of these films have characters that are even more boiled down than we could see otherwise. But, um, but series, cartoon series on TV have 
you know, much longer time for character development and character diversity. Um, so one that comes to mind is the show Proud Family. Um, that, Love you know, family. yeah, I really, you know, and, and certainly we are seeing some stereotypes in Proud right. Family, but what we're seeing is we're seeing such a range of characters that um, children can watch these and, and sort of see this variety. Um, and of course, you know, PBS has been doing stuff that's great for a really long time. Um, and, you know, they're ahead of the game in terms of taking on some of these more difficult conversations with children, uh, making them feel safe and okay to talk about race difference, um, all of those kinds of things. So, so that's, that, that's would be my, answer because even films where we see more um a wider range of characters so if you i don't know if you ever saw the film shark tale which um will smith was he starred in um it has you been see, on the screen when i've taken children to get uh haircuts but I okay. <laughs> so you, you're seeing like a whole bunch of different um kinds of so you see different kinds of blackness you also see um other ethnicities that are represented, um, so like the Italian American community, but those are still super, super stereotypical. So the Italian American community are all mafia sharks, mm. um, and you know Will Smith is rapper comedian, and and so his character is really um, quite a buffoon character. And then there are two um, Jamaican-inspired henchmen who are sort of these violent Rastas. And so, so even when you have a film that is showing different snapshots of ethnicities and races, um, it's still those are still relying so, so heavily on, um, on these character stereotypes. So. Right, right. What about, um, was Zootopia part of your study? Just curious. No, okay. I did not. I did not look at Zootopia. I think it came came out after my cutoff because the book was already getting late, and I was right. like, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I just can't anymore. Yeah, I was just curious because that one actually does touch on um, some some of some racial issues and mm -hmm. and working within a city. Um, mm -hmm. and, and differences. Is that the one where the, the fox wants to become a police officer? Am I right it's about a, that? It's one? a bunny that wants to become a, bunny. a police okay. officer. And she has, <laughs> to work, she has to work with a fox who... Right, okay. Uh, she's George... George Clooney plays the fox. And, okay. um, and he's kind of a, a crook and a, a con man. Um, mm. But uh, but she is is a bunny. And people are like, bunnies can't be police officers. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And so there's a lot of, of things like that uh, going on there. Um, but it, it, I was just curious because it's a, it's an interesting movie, especially with the, the police idea thrown in there. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's a, a big, whole big subject. Um, mm -hmm. But, but yeah, so I, I love the idea too that TV shows and as nannies, a lot of times we're limiting screen time anyway mm -hmm. while we're with the kids. So a TV show actually probably fits into any screen time that we have a lot better mm -hmm. than, than a movie. Um, it's rare that I <laughs> I get to watch a, a film. With yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, you know, and that's, you know, part of also looking at media is, um, you know, films, not only are films coming out more frequently than they were 40 years ago, but they also, um, films just aren't released in isolation, right? They also now have all of this merchandising that come out with the film um, in terms of, you know, certainly Disney stores do this, but then um, the uh, different promotions that are through like fast food restaurants, right? Like Happy Meals and stuff like that right. have these um, film characters. And, and it's also the case, like when I was a kid, you went to the theater, you saw the film once and that was it. But now um, lots and lots of kids see these films many, many, many times because you see it in the theater, but then, you know, you can watch it on a streaming service, mm-hmm. right? Or you have a DVD. Um, and, you know, when, when my kids were really little, we had a minivan that had a DVD player in it. And they had the expectation that every time you got in the car, (laughs) you were supposed to watch something. And so the saturation is way different than it was, um, you know, when I was a little kid. Um, And so I think that's another reason we really should be vigilant, um, because I think that a lot of parents feel like this is innocent and it is something to occupy children's time. Um, But there's so much of it. And we see that, you know, so if you're talking about these, um, like, toys that come out with these films, oftentimes children, when they're playing with the toys, they're not playing in ways that is of their own creation. What they're doing is they're taking the toys and reenacting scenes from the films, right? Because it's it's sort of a ready-made um, script for them. And so they are watching it. They are... Um, absorbing it and then they are performing it with toys or characters and so there are so many layers of them um, just learning these racialized ways of understanding um, understanding identities right yeah and uh, um, I guess I'm also curious about if there are ways that uh adults can help like I don't, i'm not exactly sure what to do but like help get more diverse movies made oh <laughs> <laughs> um, well yeah I, I think that you know i mean so the entertainment industry is in some ways so unchanged um, right. We're just now yeah. seeing women be able to make some inroads in terms of um, directing and producing. Um, we still see women that are underpaid um, and that's women. So right. um, then we're talking about black and brown people. It's even um, even more dramatic. Um, these sort of ways into the film industry. Um, and I, I think that that parents and caregivers. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of power to, um, to sort of, you know, buying potential. And I think that we've seen it, you know, we've seen that in really awesome ways with the book publishing industry Mm -hmm. where more and more books are showing, um, wide ranges of representation. Um, and I think it's possible certainly, and we, and we do see it with television as well, not just animated television, but live action television too, 
um, because, you know, we're seeing shows now that we never would have seen 30 years ago. And the idea is it's, you know, to reflect the, um, the actual demographics of the U.S., but then also reflects sort of changing society. Um, and so I think that's, that's what parents and caregivers really need to advocate for. Um, and I think that's why the, the Princess and the Frog film was made, because you had so many black parents saying, you know, my daughter also wants to see herself as a Disney princess. Um, so I think that kind of pressure is always helpful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, these are, these are, are it's a huge multi-million dollar industry and it's, it's a big, big moneymaker. And so if there's, if there's a demand for the product, I think the product will be made. And I do think, you know, I don't think that any of these film companies are trying to do anything damaging. I just think that, um, they have a formula and it's, um, successful. Right. And I think it sells, right? Because it's also the case that audiences want to see funny black characters. You know, the kids I did these watching studies with, they specifically said, no, those characters wouldn't be as funny if they didn't talk like that. And what they were talking about is speaking African-American English. So this is part of the cultural consciousness. Um, and it is what, you know, audiences want to see. It's why you know, if you look at the Shrek franchise, Eddie Murphy, it seems like every other month I see some article saying Eddie Murphy wants to do another Shrek. He's the only one, but he wants to do another Shrek. Yeah. But so. I mean, but those are often Eddie Murphy's lines in both Mulan and Shrek are often the most quoted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Or like, I mean, if you if you look at Mad the first Madagascar, Chris Rock's character had the crack had the catchphrase. It's crack a yeah. and, and and the little McDonald tabby meal zebra. If you push the button on him, he would say over and over again, it's crack a -lackin'. And so, yeah, these are this. These are the, the my the kids in my and my studies said these are their favorite characters. Um, you know, these are the ones that, that they want to be friends with, this kind of stuff. And so, um, so yeah, these are these characters are included, you know, as anchors. But one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at some of the top grossing animated films um, recently, they don't have black characters in them at all, like How to Train Your Dragon. That whole series doesn't have any black intended, doesn't have any black voices um, up. Um, yeah. you know, that was a film that did really, really well. Um, so these things aren't needed to sell. It's kind of a gimmick. Um, right. and, but then once a franchise has it, then, you know, they, they, I mean, imagine Madagascar without Chris Rock's character, without the zebra. It's yeah. Just, yeah, I, so. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. And he's, and he's not the, he's not the central character in any of those, but, but know. he's essential. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And I, back to, to happy feet. I do remember that, um, of even I, cause I, I was younger at the time. Um, and when I went to see it, I, I just came away very confused <laughs> overall by that movie. <laughs> I was like, I know it was teaching me good things, I think, but mm -hmm. I had to sort through a lot <laughs> yeah get there um so and I, I remember that Robin Williams scene and and being mm -hmm. like out of all of your voices Robin yeah um, <laughs> yeah he had yeah. so many 
Yeah, well, he also voiced two um, two lesser roles in there, which were these, um, I think, supposed to be Cuban penguins. Oh. And so it's the same kind of thing, right? Where, um, and you know, I mean, it's it's just, I I just feel like it's really problematic to hire white actors to do these voices, these other ethnic voices. It's just. Right. I mean, it, it just, it harkens back to minstrel shows. It really does. Um, and we, we object to it less because we're not seeing it. We're not, you know, seeing someone visually in blackface. But as a linguist, it's the same, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's this um, oral blackface. So, right, right. And yeah. I, I think that, yeah, we do our um, alarm bells go off when we, when we physically see someone in blackface. Mm-hmm. But I agree that that the same the same feeling of alarm doesn't happen um, with auditory cues mm-hmm. of blackface. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, thank you for bringing that to my attention because it's something that <laughs> I, I don't know that I would have thought about. Um, well, I'll not- tell you, any movie you watch from here on out, Martha, you are going to be listening to it. My <laughs> students tell me all the time; they're like, "You ruined the movies for me," but. <laughs> But yeah, you will be listening to it in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. And I know because um, with some of my older nanny kids, we um, they ask me, you know, can we watch some of your favorite movies from when you mm-hmm. were a kid? And a few times, like, and Peter Pan was never one of my favorite movies, but they were <laughs> doing Peter Pan as a play that summer. And so we watched mm-hmm. the Disney movie and it's, rough to yeah. watch I know. <laughs> it is, it did, is did they ask you any questions about it <laughs> um a few and then it was interesting because um I had actually um helped give feedback on the script of the play version they were doing and in the play mm-hmm. version um instead of these Indian type characters, they, they had them, they were called dwellers and they were, um, the people that had been on the Island when Captain Hook arrived. And so, um, and so they had this whole, they had built this whole, you know, world around the dwellers and, and they, um, dressed them very differently than like a native American, Mm-hmm. would dress you know they were just completely they had built their own culture around these dwellers but the idea of you know pirates coming in and taking over was preserved and right. you know, discussed in a in a much healthier way i thought um in the compass creative dramatic production which they've been on the podcast before is the only reason i'm saying their name um, <laughs> and and so once the girls and and one of the girls that i nanny played a dweller um and so talking to her about that because she she was nervous about it when mm-hmm. uh because we had talked about the Disney version of Peter Pan. And, um, and I said, you know, I've read the script and and this is how they handled that. And she Mm -hmm. was excited to play a dweller. Okay. So, so yeah, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's interesting and it's a lot to unpack. And I think that, um, this idea that we can, uh, sit kids in front of any sort of media and, you know, wipe our hands of right. talking to them about it is, uh, is not the healthiest way. Um, 
and and yeah i think media is is important you know you don't you don't want to isolate your kids from cultural phenomena but it's also just as important if not more to then discuss it with them and and allow them to ask questions and answer them as as openly and honestly as 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 age appropriate and as you can yeah yeah and I, I think one of the lessons we're learning lately is that um, one of the most important things that we can teach our children is how to be critical consumers of media mm -hmm. um, and and how to you know, think through some of the things that they're seeing. Um, because I think that we, I think we so often use media as such, um, such escapism and, and aren't sort of interrogating some of the stuff that's going on that we allow children just to come into this lull where they're accepting of everything. And, um, and it's okay for them to, question and criticize. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it does help them in lots of areas of their lives just to not be um, unquestionably accepting of what they're seeing on screens or, you know, in newspapers or, you know, on the web or whatever. So, so it's, I think it's good practice. And I think, you know, there are some of these things where, you know, you can, you can have, um, really important conversations about the real world by using some of these um, problematic messages in uh, children's animated films. Like, you know, returning to Lion King, you have the hyenas who are clearly these racialized characters who are left out of the circle of life, who are in this sort of gray ghetto. Um, and that's a really interesting way to talk about um, how certain people are pushed to the margins in you know, America, right? I mean, it's, it's, the idea is all of the white characters live in this utopia, but the brown characters um, are in this wasteland. And so it, it could, you know, for, for kids who are old enough, it could be a really good way of talking about um, urban decay um, and about ghettoization of populations in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, completely. There you go. And the new one <laughs> is coming out. So yeah, it's yeah, all you know, get. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I just think it's so interesting. All of these remakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, because one of the reasons that you know the college wanted to put out a press release about my work is because of the remake of Aladdin, which I have not seen. I've seen a lot of the trailers and all of that, um, but I and I've read a lot of critiques. And I, from what I understand, is if you saw the animated Aladdin the remake of the Aladdin for you is kind of an epic fail um, mm -hmm. just because of the way that you remember the animated one, which had its own problems. Right. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so it's interesting to see if some of these um, animated films are remade um, in a live action slash CGI way that is an attempt to fix some of those earlier problems in the animated one. So, so a, a kind of do-over um, and in a way yeah. to make even more money off of them. So. Right, right. So. And <laughs> hold on to the rights to the story. I hear that's a, a reason why yeah. it's happening is that they have to like interact with those rights every mm. so many years to keep them. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if that's true, but I have heard that. Um, and so, yeah, that is, that's, I, I'm excited to, 
have had this conversation with you so that as these new movies start coming out, I can start watching them with a, a more critical eye and, <laughs> um, and then talking. Cause that now I, I mainly work with babies, but I still, um, babysit and, and work with some older kids. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm, and when I do babysit like at night and stuff, we will sometimes watch films. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to, to have more of these, uh, open conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember, and this is more on the, the feminist wavelength. Um, but I watched the new, the live action Cinderella with mm-hmm. sleepover. I was babysitting for a sleepover. So it was a bunch of 13 year old girls. And, um, as I was watching it, a lot of them were like, why is no one asking her who she wants to marry? <laughs> and they were like, awesome. a shoe, like DNA, do a DNA swap. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> it was very, very funny. Um, and, and so great to see them be like, well, this, I don't buy this. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it's not the world that I know. And so, um, and why wouldn't you do it this yeah. way? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've done, and, and you know, and, and that's great for girls, and it also is great for boys, right? Because those right? films also sort of teach boys what to expect in terms of, you know, girlhood, femininity, and all of that. And so, um, so it's also really good for boys to understand that, you know, that's not reality. Um, and, and also to see, you know, what sort of the roles are for men and masculinity and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I agree. We've we've done we have made some important progress um, when it comes to uh, gender roles in these films. So I'm hoping I'm hoping we'll catch up when it comes to to race and ethnicity, particularly with um, with black characters, because I think that we are starting to see um, some of my friends who um, who are Hawaiian um, didn't completely endorse Moana. Um, but I do think, you know, we're certainly, like you mentioned Coco, we're starting to see more of those films as well. And, and Moana, of course, had its issues too. Right. Um, but but we're not, I don't think we're seeing, I think we still have a prescribed way um, for black characters to be. And mm-hmm. so I'd like to see, I'd like to see that catch up too. Yes, me too. Um, and I, I also, just one other way of, of helping um, communicate and and tell different stories to children is just to keep in mind that that books, like you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. are are making more progress. So, I I think going to the library and getting um, books that have uh, you know strong black heroines and heroes and and things like that is is also a good way or just different like just Mm -hmm. different types it doesn't they don't have to be just the the strong but um but yeah some of you know I I just think going to the library and exploring all the different stories there that are offered um is a is a good way to start looking at the different ways you can tell stories um, even if we're not seeing them in films yet. Mm-hmm. And, and live action films have, have done a way better job than animated ones as well, right? I mean, yeah. if you look at, at what's happening with the whole comic book industry films, 
Um, and then, you know, like there's lots of lots of films that that showcase um, really reasonable black characters um, in live action. Um, it's just you know the the animated films just are just kind of stuck. A lot yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I do think that it's um, the the buyer's power is gonna be what moves that. <laughs> yeah, it's those gears turning again uh, and and changing things. So I I do think asking for for different kinds of movies is a good way to do it. <laughs> I agree. And then going and supporting those different movies when they when they are out mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is is a good way to do it. Um, is there? Are, do you have any other uh, thoughts or anything else you'd like to share? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I really appreciate you having me on. This was a terrific opportunity. So. Thank well, you. yes, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I, I was also an English major undergrad, and then oh, okay. I, I went on to be a teacher for a little while, and now I'm um, a nanny and then going to get my degree in family counseling. So language and the power of language is really important to me. So I appreciate you sharing um, this with me. Oh, yeah, no problem. And all of us that are listening. Um, and if people want to learn more about um, you and your work and uh, when the book does come out, want to get a copy of that, where is a good place to learn more? Um, probably um, look to Gettysburg College. Um, I'm in the provost office now. I'm an associate provost. Um, some of my other work... We have a um, an open access resource called the Cupola here at Gettysburg, um, and so if if people want to read my other work, um, which isn't really about film, it's it's all about different aspects of the linguistic work I do. Um, so I'm available via email, um, and I can be found at the college website. My do you want my email address? Is that good or sure? If you're if you're willing to share that, um, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Now, my college email is jblomqu at gettysburg.edu. Um, and the book is going to be um, published by Oxford University Press. And I am in what I'm hoping is my last round of revisions now. Um, so I'm hoping that it will be out um, by the certainly by the end of the year is what my editor is hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Congratulations. That's a Thanks. huge <laughs> accomplishment. I I uh can only imagine writing a book. Yeah. Like <laughs> it is. I am not gonna write another one. Yeah. I said it here. I am not writing another one. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, well well wonderful. Um well we end each episode with a fun, cute story. And I actually went to a clothing exchange last night. Um we had all, you know, Marie condoed our apartments <laughs> and um mm -hmm. and so we did a clothing exchange and there was another nanny there and she was um, her name's Monica, and she told me this story of um, 
she was working with two boys. One was six and one was three. And they were giving her the lowdown on how she could become a real princess. So these are the steps. Number one, dress pretty. And underwear is required. (laughs) She said that the three-year-old was potty training. And so she was the one that said that. And she was like, Underwear is necessary to be a princess. Um, (laughs) No diapers for princesses, you know? Uh, And then number two, no weapons. You need to use your words. Um, Mm -hmm. Number three, you need to find a fairy godmother. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they they were sure to say, because the tooth fairy has better things to do. Um, (laughs) And then number four is that you have to marry a prince if you want to be a princess, so... Um, and that was, that was the, the plan from these, these two little boys. Okay. <laughs> oh, very, very interesting. But I love that underwear is required to be a princess. That, yeah, that's the best, that's the best part to keep that in mind. Yep. Point taken. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun when you're, you know, working with kids and just the, the way that things um, come up that are important to them, but it comes up in such surprising ways because I'm sure potty training is all consuming, you know. Oh, yeah. Through it. So, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and oftentimes, right, um, you know, I remember babysitting and, and the, the um, incentive for the potty training was, you know, you got underwear, like cool underwear, even with right. my boys, like it was like you got cool underwear if you could just, you know, get out of diapers and so yeah. that's that's the the eye is on the prize right there <laughs> very much is, very much is. <laughs> well thank you so much dr bloomquist i really appreciate you being here thank you i appreciate you having me on it was really it was great talking to you i hope that your listeners um found all of it interesting and useful and yeah. um you know hopefully if you know get some follow-up questions or something like that and Martha, if you ever want to talk about my other work, yes. I'm available. <laughs> yes, wonderful. We will. I I will work on scheduling that. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. All right, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. The Chronicles of Nania is produced and hosted by Martha Reddick. Artwork by Noni Amadon. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Find him at secondbedroomstudio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chronicles of Nania. And on Twitter at Nania Podcast. To contact us, email chroniclesofnania at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This show has been brought to you by Machine Culture. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.